And we welcome you to the Monday Morning Show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Berg. Coming up on Friday, October 13th, CABA, the Kenosha Area Business Alliance, is once again bringing to the area Inspire, a one-day leadership development experience, with proceeds from the event directly benefiting the CABA Education Foundation. This event is going to be occurring at Journey Church, 10,775th Street on the south side of Kenosha. And a very exciting array of guests are going to be making presentations on that day. And one of them is my morning show guest today. And I am profoundly pleased to be able to spend the next few minutes of WGTD's morning show with one of the special guests who is going to be part of the upcoming Inspire event, a leadership development event uh, in which hundreds of people in and around the Chicago and Milwaukee area and the corridor in between will be coming together to explore various themes related to true and effective leadership. And among the very special guests, part of this Inspire event is my morning show guest, Raven Jemison. She is someone who has extensive experience in the world of professional sports, actually with experience in uh, the NBA, currently with the Milwaukee Bucks as their executive vice president of business operations. She has also written, uh, worked in the NBA's league office. She's worked for the NFL's uh, San Francisco 49ers, for Major League Baseball's Pittsburgh Pirates, and the NHL's Florida Panthers. So she has made a name for herself and left a mark in a number of different arenas. But her story, even beyond all that she has achieved, is an especially striking and inspiring one, and one which she is telling in a book that is about to be published called More Than Representation, The Cheat Codes to Own Your Seat at the Table. And in this book, she is seeking... uh, to reach out, in a sense, to the next generation and sharing her own story as truthfully as she can about how she has made her way through the world, uh, how her background as a native of Tuscaloosa, Alabama, and all that she has experienced since, not only as a black woman, but as a black queer woman, has uh, led her down this uh, exciting path. Not always an easy path, to be sure but one from which she has learned incredibly valuable lessons which she seeks to share with the rest of us. And again, she will be one of the very special guests, one of the speakers for this upcoming Inspire event. And before I forget, I want to remind our listeners that uh, you can get $30 off the regular registration rate by using the special code WGTD2023 in order to hear the full lineup of speakers, including my morning show guest today, Raven Jemison, We welcome you to the morning show. Thank you so much, Greg. Wow, what a, what a great opening. I think I have a lot to live up to in this conversation. <laughs> Thank you so much I, for that. You are very welcome. I have really enjoyed uh, exploring your book uh, a, a very great deal. And I was touched and inspired right from the get-go when I saw its dedication. You dedicate the book to my ancestors, known and unknown. You live Mm. in me. I'm just curious. uh, I mean, there are probably all kinds of people, including hands-on mentors, to whom this book very easily could have been dedicated, but you chose instead to acknowledge your ancestors. Why was that so important to you? Well, 
I mean, if you think about just being a descendant of an enslaved African, um, <laughs> the journey that I have had in just my short time here on earth would not have been possible without the sacrifice that they made not only when they came over to America, but also I say known and unknown specifically because as I talk about in my book, my grandmother and my uncle, who have both since passed, um, played a very, very big part in me getting to where I am, whether it was through example, um, with my uncle being the first person in our family to graduate from college. Um, he not only graduated once, but he graduated three times with multiple degrees. Um, or my grandmother, who had a ninth grade education and raised seven children pretty much by herself. Um, I would not be here without them. And for me to honor them in just a small bit through the words um, at the beginning of my book, is, 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 it pales in comparison to, to, to what they have meant to me. Um, but I can't tell my story without including them and honoring them. Right. And I guess part of why that dedication leapt out at me is because at, at several different points, you, you really talk about how this book is as much as anything intended for those who come after you. And uh, mm-hmm. so I, I love that looking in both directions at the ancestors who came before you and looking to the generation that, that comes after you. And at one point you write, we owe it to the next generation to be truthful about the journey. That is, you owe it to the next generation to be truthful for your own experience and your own story. What are some of the ways in which we tend not to be truthful? And then in what way do you seek to be exceptionally truthful in the way you are telling your story uh, in your book, More Than Representation? Yeah, it's a great question, Greg, and I talk about it in, in the introduction. I used to, when mentors or people after speaking engagements, engagements would come up to me and just say, like, how did you get here? What did you do to, to get to this particular job or meet this particular person? And I would be very vague. Um, you know, the typical responses, believe in myself and I bet on myself and I met the right person and I worked really hard and it was vague, right? Like that's not information. That's just kind of giving someone an answer so you can get to the next person. And what I realized and what prompted the writing of this book was I was asked the same question back to back within a a matter of days. And it was a very specific question. And it was, how did you get here? And that question had been asked to me a billion times, but they asked another question as the follow-up. And they said, no, I want to know specifically what you did at this point when you were the only person in the room, the only black person in the room, the only woman in the room. No, I want to know what you did at this point in your journey. And so they were asking very specific questions. And I felt like, okay, no more generic responses. It is my duty. I feel like this is a a calling and a purpose of mine to actually tell you what it took for me to get to this seat. And you mentioned in your introduction that the journey has not been, not only has it not been a straight line, it has not been an easy journey. Um, There's been a lot of twists and turns, but I wouldn't trade it for a minute when I think about what I learned at each one of those turns. And so 
you know, in typical type A fashion. Um, I'm type A minus, by the way, so I am a reformed type A. <laughs> I, I, buck, I went home and I went to my journal because pretty much since I started in sports 18 years ago, I wrote at least a journal entry every day, whether it was today was a good day and that was it, or like all the things that happened that day that made it a tough day or a great day. And so I just started going through my journals because I was like, there's got to be something here that tells me how I got here. And so that, that night turned into a weekend of whiteboarding and post-it notes and saying like, oh, wow, like not only did I encounter this at this time in my career, but I repressed this part of my journey because I just had to get through it and be excellent and be great and be perfect and get the job done. And so by the end of it, by the end of that weekend, I had what is now called the cheat codes, but I had like a bucket of, I won't call it advice, but a bucket of kind of gems or kind of pieces that I felt like, okay, there's a story that fits in each one of these buckets. And I think this is how I got here. <laughs> and so I didn't know that it was, go- I, I didn't know that it was going to be a book, but it was just something that I felt like I needed to answer for myself so I could give a better answer to those who were asking me that question. Right. Um, so that's what I mean by, by being truthful about the journey. It doesn't benefit anyone, especially if you look like me or if you love like me, it doesn't benefit anyone to just give generic ex- ex- uh, responses. Mm. It doesn't. So that's why the book, you know, I started writing the book because I felt like if one person learned something, then I think I've done what I needed to do with it. Absolutely. One other question about, in a sense, who this book is for or the purpose behind the book. You write at one point, this book is for uh, the black, indigenous, and people of color women who sit at the intersection of marginalization. I think that is such an interesting turn of phrase. Can you explain what you mean by, uh, for instance, a a black woman or some other woman of color sitting at the intersection Mm -hmm. Of marginalization. Yeah. So, you know, in one vein, being a black person um, in corporate America or as an entrepreneur comes with its own challenges, right? So whether it's, you know, sometimes you're the only person in the room that looks like you and might have lived experiences like yourself. Now you add the intersectionality of being a woman on top of that, which comes with its own experiences and lived experiences that might be different because in corporate America, for example, there's a lot of men in the C-suite. There's a lot of men at the executive table and you could be the only one. So I, as a queer black woman, sit at the intersection of three marginalized communities that have very little representation um, in the spaces that I'm in. So if you look like me or you love like me, I hope that when you read my story, that maybe you see some things that you can take from it to say, okay, she was juggling this or the the tropes of, quote unquote, being a black woman. Sometimes you could be called out as being aggressive if you state your point in a way that isn't emphatic or passionate. You could be called someone that's hard to work with if you know exactly what you want and you can say exactly what you want, right? So there are certain tropes and there are certain things that come with sometimes being in one marginalized community, but I sit at the intersection of three. So I'm hoping that if someone who sits at the intersection of a number of marginalized communities can see some things in my lived experience where they feel like, okay, I can connect with that. And I might not handle it exactly as Raven did, 
but here's some ideas that I can play with such that I can be myself first and foremost, be authentically myself and bring my authentic self to whatever space it is I'm trying to be in. Mm -hmm. One moment in the book that was really eye-opening for me uh, is something that uh, is uh, from your childhood, although I suspect Mm -hmm. that maybe once in a while this was something you even experienced from time to time later on. But at one point you you talk about how as as a youngster you would sometimes be bullied by certain other black kids for, in your words, acting white, acting too white, mm-hmm. uh, but at the same time being either told in words or, or maybe by implication without words that you did not belong in, in certain sort of white scenarios or white situations. And I just, mm-hmm. as I read those words... Um, I guess on some level, as a fairly old white guy, I I, I sort of <laughs> knew that that would it was sometimes the experience of, of of youngsters, and yet I guess I never stopped to think about what a vice that would be, of of you trying to be yourself and finding barricades uh, in terms of the white community, and then even with your own black community. Uh, also facing certain barricades or rejection uh, if they kind of perceived the way you were living as not being true to who you were supposed to be. I mean, I just can't, I just really can't imagine what it would be like to be kind of caught in that vice, caught between those conflicting pressures and, in a sense, conflicting rejections. Uh, How did you, in a sense, first of all, just endure that and more importantly, rise above it and learn from it? Oh, oh, Greg, that's such a good question and a question that I still deal with, quite frankly, with my therapist. Um, (laughs) To be honest, I'm not sure that I would have gotten through this without the support of my parents. Um, So I'll use an example, and I talk about this in the book, too. Um, Growing up, I was a gymnast, and as a gymnast, there were no other black girls on our gymnastics team. And so what that meant was that I, to some of my black um, classmates, I was in a sport, quote unquote, sport that was elite. That was not what the black kids did. Right. And then in the other vein, I was the only black girl on my gymnastics team So when it came to picking music, and I talk about this in the book too, when it came to picking music for my optional routine, I only had like top 40 pop music that wasn't the music that I was listening to at home, for example. So I was kind of caught in this um, weird space pretty much early on, and it just continued through high school because I was in AP classes or advanced placement classes. Um, I went to a predominantly white institution at Auburn University, so there were only 4% black students at the time I went to to Auburn. So I've kind of always been the only in spaces, and the way that I handled that um, pretty much was my parents, every day I came home, I didn't internalize it as much as I felt support from my parents, right? Like, you are who you are. God made you this way. Um, you will do great things in this world. And I just kind of leaned on that. Um, it wasn't until, of course, as I, I joked a little bit about talking to my therapist, but it wasn't until I got 
older that I was like, oh, wow, I haven't really been accepted in any space that I've been in. So what I need to do is really embrace myself and know what my value, and that's the first cheat code, Mm. know your value to know your worth. That whole work of understanding who I was was very important um, because I had not really found my place um, because I had not found a, a, a support circle, if you will, um, until I started doing that work and really becoming comfortable with myself. So to answer your question, it was a challenge, I think, but it was also something that is very consistent with what, you know, black women in particular have to do. We have to exist and we have to compartmentalize and we have to deal with stuff and repress stuff. As I mentioned, as I was going through my journals, but we still have to be excellent. We still have to be strong. So that DNA is in me. Um, so to answer your question, I dealt with it by just doing what, in my opinion, black women do all the time. Hmm. Which is we just make it happen. Um, and, you know, we pay for it down the road, which I talk about in my third cheat code, pause, reflect, and reinvest, um, where I had a breakdown um, because I just took on so much and I repressed so much and it finally hit ahead. So to answer your question, I dealt with it as how we always do. And um, I, I'm grateful, though, for the support of my parents because I knew that no matter what happened in gymnastics, whatever happened when I started playing basketball, no matter what happened, they loved me for who I was, and I always felt loved, and I felt that support at home. Hmm. We're speaking with Raven Jemison, uh, and uh, we're talking about her book, More Than Representation, The Cheat Codes to Own Your Seat at the Table. She is one of the special guests of the upcoming Inspire event. Talking about acceptance, that's something we read quite a lot uh, in your book. At one point you write, acceptance is a gift I often give to others without a second thought to giving it to myself. And that's so interesting. I mean, I think actually probably a lot of us maybe tend to think about acceptance in one direction or the other, but not necessarily as a two-way street, that even as we try to accept others faults and all, warts and all, whatever, uh, that often we are not similarly kind to ourselves. And it sounds like that's been a bit of a journey for you as well. Oh, I mean, that it's been, it's still an ongoing journey, uh, to be honest, but it's, you're spot on. I think I will always like accept people and, you know, to your point about flaws, like I can easily look past someone's flaws and say, oh, they're human or, oh, they're growing or, oh, they're evolving or they are learning about themselves and give them grace that I was not giving myself. And I'll use the example of me coming to terms with the fact that I was gay um, or that I am gay. That process was excruciating, um, partly because growing up in Alabama, the Bible Belt, um, the daughter of a, a preacher or the granddaughter of a preacher uh, the daughter of a women's minister, church was as much a part of the fabric of my life as anything else. So growing up, that, um, how can I put this, the the odd, the pieces that were at play from my religious upbringing mm. alongside me coming to terms with who I am fully and that realizing it is not a choice to be gay, um, was hard for me to accept. And, you know, again, I tell the story in the book 
about me coming out to my mom and having to go back into the closet because it did not work out well for me um, the first time. Um, and eventually, you know, of course, she's come to know and love me fully um, as well as, as my wife. And, and now everything is beautiful. But that part of accepting myself and truly being like, this is who God made me. And I have to first come to terms with who I am before I can add value to anyone's bottom line, top line, anyone's organization. I really need to come to terms with who I am so I can fully accept that not everybody's going to love it. Not everybody's going to love me. Not everybody's going to like me. But if I love me, I'm good. Right. right? So that, that process, that process was, was significant. It's still ongoing because there are some days that I have some very tough days. Um, but the, the, the process to get to a point where I could come into a room and own the room fully as myself took some time. But the moment I did, it was a beautiful thing. And it was a thing that I found that people really gravitated to um, and embraced. Somewhere, and I, 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 I know I wrote it down and now I can't find it in my notes, but you say something about <laughs> how th- th- this this matter of of acceptance uh, of, of who you are versus trying to be someone that you're not. I mean, first of all, the latter is exhausting. I mean, and it's little wonder that somebody who is engaged in, in a sense, a fake life uh, is not going to be very effective at anything other that, than that <laughs> that they're trying to do. I mean, yeah. there's, they just don't have their full selves and their full energy and all of their gifts to bring to bear. And, uh, and then by the same token... When somebody fully accepts themselves for who they are, they you are going to be a much more joyous and energetic employee, whether you're working for the Milwaukee Bucks or for a McDonald's or wherever it might be. But I had never stopped to think about how acceptance, in a sense, unleashes all of who we are, including all of our energy, all of our passion. I mean, and when we are bottled up, not being true to who we are, that is really impossible. It, it, you're spot on. Um, I always say this, that it's hard enough to exist in corporate America doing the work, right? Like I want to come to work and I want to be excellent. I want to do the work at a very high level so I can be considered a high performer and someone that contributes to the organization, not just at the bare minimum, but adds value, right? So if that is my mission every single day, and that's hard enough. Add to the fact that I am now trying to be someone I'm not, the weight of that every single day and coming in to be someone totally different. And, and you know, I talk about code switching in the book, which is something that still has to be done, um, sometimes regardless if you're authentically being yourself or not. But if you now add to the fact that, oh, I have to act straight or I have to look like what I think straight might be so no one figures me out, or if I accidentally say my girlfriend's name versus the guy I said I was dating, like all those things, which I had to do, right? Like I was playing that game and it was exhausting. And I said it in the book, like to be someone else is exhausting. It's hard enough to do the job at a high level. Why add more stress? Um, And quite frankly, it's the thing that I tout the most in leadership is like, if we want people to come to work and be productive, Let's remove obstacles and create an inclusive environment and create an environment where they want to come work and they feel like they can be themselves because now we've removed the barrier uh, to success in that manner. The Mm. job is hard enough, right? Right. For for sure. Absolutely. Mm. Just a quick word about 
the arenas in which you have you know done all this work, and I, by that I mean the, the various arenas of professional sports. And, uh, mm-hmm. of course, that is an arena, kind of a landscape, uh, in which you know often we kind of think about entrenched traditional values. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, of course, here you are, a black queer woman, in in that environment, in those arenas, and and doing in, in incredibly well. Uh, can you just help us understand, in a sense, what it is like to be you, uh, doing this mm-hmm. kind of work in in that world? And is it a world that has maybe changed more and become much more accepting than maybe we might assume, uh, or or is it still a very challenging environment? Uh, in which to to live your fully authentic self? Yeah, it's a great question. I, I, I It has definitely evolved and gotten better. Um, from the moment I stepped inside sports business in 2006 with the Florida Panthers, I was very much closeted and hiding every piece of myself. And I can't say that, that I would not have been accepted. I had not accepted myself such that I can have the confidence to be myself in that environment. So it's unfair to say that the Panthers weren't um, evolved enough to accept me because I was I had not accepted myself. But I can say that I came out in my next stop, which was the Pittsburgh Pirates. And how I was embraced, it calmed every single fear that I had. Um, my teammates and colleagues were amazing with respect to accepting me, um, accepting my then uh, girlfriend, who is now my wife, and from there, because I've just owned who I am and I've led authentically, um, I think I've made it a little bit easier for people to accept me, quite frankly. Like, I try my best to be someone who works in sports that happens to be a black queer woman, not a black queer woman that works in sports, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Who I am and what I do outside of work is great like i have a great life outside of work but i wanted to be very clear that when i come into the room that i am here to add value to the organization as raven not raven a black queer woman who's doing great work and i've tried my best to disassociate the thing the qualifiers that i have become to some people to say nope when you get me you're going to get a hard worker you're going to get someone who's going to add value to your bottom line you're going to get someone who adds value to your culture and I just so happen to be a black queer woman. Um, and that part, we have not quite gotten there yet, mm. right? There's all, there's, there's all kind of awards that I've gotten that, you know, quite frankly, I, they're great, right? Game changers, most powerful women in sports. That's great. It is wonderful to receive those accolades. And I appreciate the industry thinking of me that way. But I look forward to the day that I can just be someone who comes to work and does really good work. And I just so happen to be a woman, or I just so happen to be black, or I just so happen to be a black woman, if that makes sense. So we're not there in that perspective. But I do think that that sports business has definitely evolved to the point that I am sitting um, atop a a core four sports franchise for sure. Hmm. A last quick question. I want to be sure to give you a chance to explain both the the main title of your book, More Than Representation, although what you were just now touch, touching on 
very much embodies that more than representation. Mm-hmm. But then the subtitle, yeah. the cheat codes to own your seat at the yeah. table. It's such an interesting way to put it, and I would love to know mm-hmm. uh, just what was behind your decision to frame some of what you talk about uh, with that particular language. Yeah, absolutely. So first off, the title, More Than Representation, is a double entendre. It is, I am more than a checkbox. I am more than just a black queer woman in sports. That being said, I am more than representing what is possible in sports, right? We hear all the time that representation matters, and I absolutely agree that it does. But what good is representing if I sit atop and I sit at the seat and I don't share how I actually got there? Or I, say that, I can say that to others. What good is representing for your community? What good is being the only one if you stay the only one and there are no others to follow after you? So that's what I mean by more than representation. And then the cheat codes, so I'm going to go back a little bit. When I was going through this exercise, um, as I was telling you, going through my journal, and I was looking at all the different themes, and I'm like, okay, what can I call these? Because they're not lessons, but even though they kind of are, they're like the things that I wish I knew to get to the top. And so I started thinking about the things that are kind of the unwritten rules. And I don't know if you remember this or if your listeners do, but The Legend of Zelda on Nintendo. So I used to try to beat The Legend of Zelda on the original Nintendo. I, tr- I beat my head against the wall to try to beat this game <laughs> fair and square. Okay? So, but one day, a friend came to my house, and he had the Nintendo Power magazine. And on the cover was Zelda. And so I'm like, what is this? And he's like... Have you heard of cheat codes? And in my mind, I had been raised that cheat cheating is bad, right? No one wants to cheat their way to win. And he's like, no, no, no. It's not necessarily cheating. It's getting an upper hand to skip this level. Or And what had happened, what I found out was all my friends had been done with Zelda because they got this magazine and they were using these cheat codes. And I'm like, here I am trying to beat the game fair and square, and I'm behind, and they moved on to other games. So what I did was I said, okay, if cheat, if cheat codes aren't necessarily cheating, but instead getting an advantage, then how can I look at these five things that I see in front of me, which were those buckets that I said I bucketed my stories in? And so I was like, oh, my God, these are the cheat codes. That if somebody, if somebody just graduating from college, if I gave this book to them and said, here are the things that they won't tell you in college, and here are the things that your peers who you might be working alongside won't tell you, but they already know, right? So I was like, oh, okay, well, these are the cheat codes. These are, this is how I got here. No one told me these things, but if I can tell someone else, that's what these are. Mm. So that's where the cheat codes came from. It's an amazing book, start to finish, and uh, I really encourage people to seek it out. Uh, more Than Representation, The Cheat Codes to Own Your Seat at the Table. It's not yet published, but perhaps by the time this uh, interview airs, it, it will be. Uh, it is soon to be released. And, uh, and in the meantime, Raven Jemison is one of the special guests of this marvelous event coming up called Inspire. And uh, again, for those of you listening to this interview, by using the code WGTD. 
2023 when you register, you'll get $30 off the regular registration event uh, rate for this uh, terrific event. Raven Jemison, I was truly honored to speak with you. Congratulations on all the good that you have accomplished, not just your own professional success, but all of the ways in which you have sought to be an inspiring mentor and example to others. And uh, very best wishes uh, for all that stretches ahead. And thank you once again for being my morning show guest. Thank you so much, Craig. Thank you for having me. Raven Jemison's book is expected to be released by the end of the month, and you can get more information about it by going to her website, ravenjemison.com. Her last name is spelled J-E-M-I-S-O-N. And more information about the event, Inspire Kenosha, is available at kaba.org. Kaba, of course, stands for the Kenosha Area Business Alliance. You're listening to the Monday Morning Show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Berg. To finish out today's program, you're going to be listening to a portion of my 2019 interview with best-selling author Rachel Simmons, a regular contributor to Good Morning America, whose work has appeared in the Washington Post, the New York Times, and Slate. The author of a number of different books, including Odd Girl Out and The Curse of the Good Girl, this interview concerns her book, Enough As She Is, How to Help Girls Move Beyond Impossible Standards of Success to Live Happy, Healthy, and Fulfilling Lives. I used to think that by helping girls break what I called the curse of the good girl, that they could achieve their potential. I believe that if we could get girls to speak up and advocate for themselves and be less modest and tell people what they were good at, that they could be successful and happy. And to some extent, that's been true. But what I've come to understand, especially in light of all of the depression and the anxiety and the stress that our girls are experiencing, is that what we also need to do is give them the tools to manage all these expectations that they now enjoy and all the opportunities that they enjoy. We need to help them not just lean in, uh, as Sheryl Sandberg has said, but lean inside. Hmm. You, through the course of writing this book, interviewed nearly 100 girls to try to get a sense of where they were coming from, the sort of pain or difficulties that they were experiencing in life, along with the joys and so on. I wonder if you could say a word about how it is these particular girls, I think officially maybe 96 in all, who are they, where did they come from, how hard did you work to make sure it was a diverse array of voices, uh, because I think that is very important in terms of, of, of then ultimately what, what your book tells us. I did speak to a very diverse group of girls, um, people who were first-generation college students, um, who were the first in their families to attend college, people who had grown up with a lot of privilege and for whom it was a foregone conclusion that they would go to college. Um, I interviewed young women who attended a commuter college, a large public university, um, as well as a small elite women's college, and also girls in high school around the country. So um, what was so interesting was that it didn't really matter where they came from. If they were ambitious, they were really striving in a way that left so many of them feeling like they were not enough as they were, and that's where the title of the book came from. They often felt they had to be thinner, prettier, smarter, get better grades, get more attention on social media, and that left them with a pervasive sense of self-criticism and anxiety. Mm. I think one of the most interesting examples you give us of this is uh, in the first chapter of the book where you are talking about that whole stress involved in 
somebody in high school hoping to go to a really great college or university and what it means to be able to get there. And you tell us that uh, one of the messages that girls are given uh, inadvertently uh, is, is sort of a message of caution of make sure that you're using high school to sort of fortify the skills that are already there versus uh, not venturing out. Don't make it a time of exploration or experimentation because that might derail that path towards getting into some elite school which you have dreamed about. And you talk about how that not only can be counterproductive sort of in the moment in terms of, of those dreams for the next step, but but also the way in which that robs a young person of all that a high school education and high school experience, in fact, should include. Uh, Explain that further. Sure. I I think it's really quite tragic, actually, the way that so many students believe that they have to stop taking risks. I mean, that's really what we're saying. They have to stop being curious about what they study so that they can put their resume building and their GPA and their test scores above all. And if we think about what it means to be an adolescent, that's a really critical period of time where you should be asking important questions about what you care about and what lights you up. You should also be flexing that muscle of being able to take a risk. I mean, we're talking at the most micro level about raising your hand in class and not being sure if you have the right answer. You know, being able to face a situation where you might not know the outcome, try out for a team and maybe not get accepted, try out for the play and not get a good part. And a lot of these students are foregoing those experiences because they think, I've got to play it safe. I've got to choose the opportunities where I know I'm going to excel. And I find that, again, to be quite tragic when we think about how they are developing at that critical developmental moment of adolescence. One of the things that's intriguing about your book is that it is a book not just about the difficulties and challenges that face young girls, but also some of the challenges that face parents. <laughs> you, and you say that there are actually several you call pernicious cultural messages that really sort of strike at the heart of what's already uh, a, a challenging enough uh, assignment for parents to, to be good parents of, to, to their children. Uh, explain what these pernicious cultural messages are that parents really need to be wary of. Well, I often say it's, I think, one of the hardest times in history to be a parent because as a parent myself, I mean, we're just under so much pressure to be excellent at all times. And I think one of the messages that we get is that Um, we have the power to shape our children into who we want them to become. And I think in part that's because of, frankly, people like me who write books on parenting. And we we tend to give the um, suggestion that, oh, just read this book or read this blog. And if you get very well educated about parenting, well, you should be able to kind of produce this amazing child. When in fact, as any parent will tell you, you know, your kid kind of comes out the way they are. Um, So I think that that's an incredibly difficult pressure for us to face, this sense that we're supposed to um, influence our children in these outsized ways. And then I think we also get this message that our success as parents is judged by the successes or the failures of our children. Um, And again, this, this really isn't fair, and it puts us as parents in a sense of feeling we are not enough. 
Um, and so I think what parents also have to do, and I, I give the book uh, in the book a lot of tools to help parents do this, is we have to learn how to access our own enoughness as parents. We also have to learn how to kind of control our own anxiety because, my God, it's really hard not to be anxious as we raise our children with these outsized expectations in the culture. And, of course, that just makes all of this more difficult, of course. And so uh, you, you say in, early in the book that you think of yourself first and foremost as an educator. How did that shape the way you approached this topic and especially the writing of this book? Um, well, yes, I am a teacher, and um, I'm a skill builder. I structured this book uh, like a workshop that I teach. I teach workshops at the college campus where I where I work, and I, I teach classes, and I really wanted every parent who read this book and every girl to feel like they were getting something out of it, like a lesson that they were taking. And so um, what I mean by that is that I don't dwell a lot on the problems uh, in the book. I really try to focus on, all right, what are the ingredients or the skills that every girl needs in order to manage some of this. So, for example, one of the things in the book we talk about a lot is overthinking. Um, And this is something we have spoken very little about with our girls, and yet there is an outsized problem of rumination, perseverating. Um, Many girls think, if I think a lot about something, it means I'm closer to solving it, when, in fact, that's absolutely not the case, and it's elevating their anxiety. So the book that... Uh, has a chapter on rumination and really focuses on, okay, what do you need to do to help your daughter avoid ruminating? What do girls need to do in order to redirect some of that thinking into more productive problem solving? So this book is very much structured like a, like a class I would teach. Hmm. Something else that you uh, talk about that is quite intriguing is the notion of role overload, <laughs> where, uh, where sometimes girls, and I suppose there are boys who can be uh, prone to this as well, feel like they are taking on multiple roles and, and find it difficult to sort them all out. Uh, how does this typically play out? What kinds of things did you hear about role overload? Well, I remember reading that phrase when I was doing my research and just having this aha moment, like, yes, that's exactly what girls are dealing with. And so role overload basically means when an individual has too many different roles to play in a single day, and it creates enormous stress. And I think the reason why girls are are suffering from this is because when we decided as a society to say to girls, you know what, we're going to give you access to new experiences. We're going to let you go into fields like engineering and, you know, areas where that were previously dominated by boys and men. We didn't then say to girls, you don't have to have that bikini body or you don't have to be liked by everyone and the good girl. What I think we've said as a society is you need to kind of be all of those old school things that for generations we've wanted you to be. And then you need to take on these new roles. You need to go spend time in the robotics lab. You need to, you know, um, study, study in this way and attend these experiences that you, you've never been given access to. And so it's too much. And it's also what researchers call role conflict, which is when the roles that you're being asked to play are actually in conflict with each other. It's just um, achieving one role makes it hard to achieve the other. I think it's really interesting, too, what you say about how some girls find themselves driven to disconnect from certain friends or to pull away from certain friendships that have been important to them. You, you write at one point, 
uh, that there seem to be new rules of success driving girls to disconnect from their most nourishing relationships. What's going on there? What possible connection could a girl make between their own success and pulling away from friends and friendships that have been very important to them? Well, it's a couple of things. I mean, one is that when you are trying to be amazing at everything you do, when you hold yourself to a standard that's relatively unattainable, it's very easy to imagine that all of your friends are doing more and being more than you are. And this is something I hear all over the country when I travel and talk to schools and students is I hear the girls saying, I just have this feeling like everyone's more successful than I am. And so what that creates is a sense of insecurity about friendship that, you know, I can't necessarily be happy for my friends when they succeed because I'm so concerned that I'm not doing enough as I am. And then I think there's also this uh, belief that, you know, if I have to be amazing, that everyone is potentially a threat on some level, that, that there's competition. And as I have traveled around the country with this book, the question that girls ask me in the audience is, is just that. They say to me, how do I, what do I do about a friend that I'm jealous of? How do I deal with a friendship where I'm resentful of someone I love because they're succeeding in this way that makes me so insecure? And so I think one of the really terrible casualties of all this pressure and all this striving are the relationships that are so, so nourishing and so important to girls' wellness. One thing I, uh, important topic that I sort of grazed is uh, the matter of boys and the fact that boys face their own array of, of issues and challenges and difficult choices and, and, and so on. And your book is, of course, about girls. But more than once, you kind of raise the question of making generalizations about girls feel this and boys feel that. And, uh, and, and of course, th- there is a danger whenever we do that because there are plenty of, of, of girls who uh, tilt the other direction and plenty of boys that tilt the other direction. We aren't all boys who play with trucks and girls who want to be ballet dancers. I mean, we, we are, we are v- quite varied, of course, in, 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 in who we are, and probably nowadays more than ever. Uh, in, in light of that reality, then, uh, how did you go about this? And, uh, uh, and, and, and in a sense, are there lessons in your book that also are worthwhile for boys or the parents of boys to be considering as as well? Or does that complicate the picture too much? No, I think you're right. I mean, I, I have certainly felt, um, especially as I've taken this book around the country, so many parents of boys are in my audience and they say, listen, this is very much about my son. And I, I don't disagree. I think a great deal of what I talk about, um, not just in the book, you know, I, I talk about this in assemblies. I do school assemblies and there are often lots of boys in the audience and they are watching me with the same intent um, and, and feeling that the girls are. But, and, and this is a but, We know that in adolescence, there are certain gender differences that intensify. We know that there are certain things that girls are, by researchers' account anyway, said to feel and do somewhat differently. And that's kind of why I wanted to highlight girls. So, for example, I talked a little earlier about rumination, overthinking. We know that girls and women disproportionately do it. 
We know it's responsible largely for the gender disparity in depression, for the reason why girls and women experience depression at twice the rate of boys and men. Um, we also know that girls have the lowest self-compassion, meaning kindness to the self of any group of youth. And the list goes on and on. Um, we know girls are less likely to take intellectual risks than boys. So all of these gender differences, which, as you point out, don't make girls qualitatively different from boys, and certainly not every girl experiences that. But to me, it points to a need as an educator, as a parent, to give the parents and teachers of girls something that would attend to what we know some of those differences are. Mm. A last question. Your book, as you've already pointed out, uh, is to give the reader strategies. Um, The other significant thing that you say this book gives the reader is a language. Explain what you mean by that and, and why you think that is so very, very important you ask that because actually I think that the bottom line most important thing that parents can do is give girls a sense that what they're going through does have a language and what I mean by that is it's not just something you yourself alone are going through and that's something that so many teenagers think so they think for example I just can't stop worrying about whether or not this friend is mad at me but when as a parent you say hey listen that's called rumination that's a thing it's a thing that happens to peak at your age and I want to show you some tools you can use to deal with it that can be so liberating for the kid who thinks, oh, my God, like I couldn't stop thinking about this thing and what's wrong with me. And so for so many of us, knowing that what we're going through isn't our fault or isn't exclusively ours can alleviate shame. It can make you feel more hopeful that, you know, I, I've got tools, that I'm not alone. And I really believe that when parents do that for teenagers, it can be so powerful um, and often somewhat simple, so not, not too hard to do. Hmm. The book gives us a whole lot to think about. I really enjoyed it a lot. And it's, again, titled Enough As She Is, How to Help Girls Move Beyond Impossible Standards of Success to Live Healthy, Happy, and Fulfilling Lives, published by Harper, the author Rachel Simmons. Rachel Simmons, thank you so much. I'm really grateful for this opportunity to speak with you about your fascinating book. Me too. Thank you.